Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for CCL's Big Tent Climate Talks. Um, this conversation is going to be a bit different uh, as we will focus on the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia v. EPA by speaking with a legal expert rather than a partner or a climate organization. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Kyle Kameen, and I'm manager of stakeholder engagement and government affairs here at CCL. Uh, my work focuses primarily on the coalition, building the coalition of partners in our Big Tent as we advocate for climate policy. I am also a law student at George Washington University Law School. Um, for our episode today, it is both my and CCL's pleasure to be joined by Professor Robert Glicksman, a professor at Georgetown University, George Washington University Law School, and an internationally and nationally recognized expert in administrative, environmental, and natural resources law. He is going to shed some light on what can be learned from the recent Supreme Court decision. Before I introduce Professor Glicksman, uh, I want to make a few gentle reminders. Um, as CCLers, uh, we love our focus and we're open-minded. So in today's conversation, if you bump into something that you know feels like it's a little bit different than what you think, or really just really lean into that and see that as an opportunity to learn and better understand that perspective, um, learning from each other and working together is, is how we're going to get real meaningful climate legislation and action done. Uh, so with that, I will introduce uh, Professor Glicksman. Professor Glicksman is a graduate of Cornell Law School. His areas of expertise include environmental, natural resources, administrative, and property law. Before joining uh, GW Law School faculty in 2009, he taught at the University of Kansas Law School, where he joined the faculty in 1982 and was named the holder of the Robert W. Wagstaff Distinguished Professor of Law in 1995. Professor Glissman has practiced with law firms in DC New and New Jersey before joining and while on leave from academia, focusing on environmental, energy, and administrative law issues. He has consulted on various environmental and natural resources law issues, including work for the Secretariat of the Commission for Environmental Cooperation in Montreal, Canada. Professor Glicksman has extensive publication in his areas of expertise. He is a co-author of two law school casebooks and three monographs. He's written numerous book chapters and articles on a variety of environmental, natural resources, and administrative law topics, concentrating recently on topics such as alternative ways to allocate regulatory authority, climate change, an issue close to our hearts, federalism issues in environmental law, the challenges facing federal land management agencies, and environmental enforcement. His articles have been published in many law reviews and journals. He has been he has been a member and scholar for the Center for Progressive Reform since 2002 and a member of the center's board since 2008. We are very fortunate to have him as a guest. With that, let's transition into our conversation so I can stop doing all the talking. Audience, please don't worry. We will save time at the bottom for quite Q&A. Uh, go ahead and put those in the chat as you have questions and Brett will make sure we, we get to them. Uh, for the first part of this, I'm going to be asking our guest for his perspective and experience with some questions I've already queued up uh, to guide the conversation. So, Professor Glicksman, uh, thank you again for joining us. Can you tell our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell our audience a bit more about your background and career and what led you to become an expert in environmental, natural resources, and environmental laws? Sure. Well, the first thing to know is I grew up in New Jersey in a town on the banks of the Passaic River, which has long been one of the most polluted rivers in the country. So uh, from an early age, I was exposed to the adverse effects of pollution. Um, the, the local lore was you shouldn't go swimming in the river because you come out a different color every day. And that was due to the fact that upstream from where we lived, 
were a variety of textile manufacturing facilities that dumped their dyes pretty much untreated into the river because this was before the adoption of the Clean Water Act in, in 1972. Um, I went to college um, in uh, New York State, upper New York State, and majored in history. <clears throat> when I graduated, I entered into a master's program in French history, focusing on the period between the First and Second World Wars. But about six months into the program, I really thought, well, shouldn't I be doing something that's got a little more currency than this? Um, and so I, I switched gears and went to law school, as you said, at Cornell, um, intending at first to focus on international law because it fit with my European history background. But uh, I saw that there was a new course that was being offered in environmental law. It was the first time it had been offered at Cornell. It was one of the few courses in the nation at the time. And I took that course and realized this is what I want to do. So I switched gears again, dropped the international law component and uh, focused on, on environmental law. The other thing that I think prompted me in this direction was that during college and to some extent during graduate school, I did a lot of backpacking and hiking in some of the big national parks in the West like Grant Teton and uh, Rocky Mountain and Glacier. And I was just stunned by the beauty of what I was seeing out there. And so when I took my first environmental law course, I figured I could take the bad and the good, do something about the polluted rivers that I grew up next to and preserve uh, the natural beauty that, that I'd experienced in my, in my camping trips. And so those two things I think together spurred me to focus on environmental law. Uh, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's you know that that connection that's near and dear to your heart from growing up and, and seeing that um and and the hiking and backpacking part i i share that passion personally um just uh last just earlier this year i did a hike um to everest base camp and saw like just incredible things in nepal and saw the kumbu glacier receding and you know it really makes you feel like the work you're doing on in the space is meaningful on a personal and kind of bigger level as well so um I can certainly myself, you know, understand how that would drive your passion for it. Um, thank you for sharing that. So our audience has probably read, listened to, or watched a lot of summaries analyzing uh, the court's decision in West Virginia of the EPA. There's a lot of material out there. Um, understanding that the audience is full of climate advocates, how would you summarize the decision based on your expertise? And what are some of the top takeaways as advocates that we should all be aware of? Well, the narrowest uh, take on the case is that the, the court held that the Clean Air Act doesn't authorize EPA to engage in efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from existing power plants by forcing what the court refers to as generation shifting. It is by putting in place a regulatory program that's designed to shift electric power plants that use coal to natural gas and switch electric power plants that use natural gas to renewable sources like wind and solar. Court said that just wasn't what Congress had in mind when it adopted the Clean Air Act. It did not intend to give EPA the authority to essentially reconfigure the electric utility industry. Uh, and so the court said, there may be other things you can do, but you can't do this under the existing statute. So that's the narrow holding. Uh, 
but the, the case has broader implications, both from an environmental perspective and from an administrative law perspective. I'll, I'll start with the environmental law perspective. Um, the court sort of reserved judgment on whether there are other things that EPA could do under uh, Section 111D of the Clean Air Act, which is the provision that authorizes regulation of existing um, factories and, and power plants. Um, we know that one thing it can do is to adopt regulations that impose technological fixes on individual plants. EPA has been doing that for um, over 50 years. And it's, it's well recognized that the agency has that authority, although uh, there may be limits on how far it can push um, regulate entities to, to do things they're not currently doing. But if EPA wanted to do something like require the use of carbon capture and sequestration by power plants, that would be a possibility. Now, it's possible that if EPA was too aggressive, the court would say the economic impact of this move is not something Congress envisioned. But generally speaking, EPA can engage in technological fixes on a plant by plant basis. Whether it can engage in a sort of more innovative approach that involves what's called emissions trading is not clear. Um, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion sort of held out the possibility and said we're not ruling on that. Mm -hmm. So it may be that EPA can couple a technological fix on a plant-by-plant -plant basis with permission for utilities to engage in what are called emissions trade. What that involves is a situation in which one utility decides it is capable of doing better than what the regulations require it to do, yeah. thereby generating what we call excess emissions or tradable allowances, right. which it can sell, it can sell to another plant that for whatever reason can't or doesn't want to mm -hmm. do what's needed to comply with, with its own individual emissions cap. And those kinds of trades turn out to be, in many cases, the most efficient way uh, of restricting air pollutant emissions, including greenhouse gases, because the companies that are going to overregulate are the ones that have the cheapest costs of reducing emissions. Yeah. The people that are going to buy emissions credits or allowances are the ones that are going to have the hardest, most expensive time doing so. So we'll have to wait and see whether the court ultimately decides that's within or outside EPA's authority. That's an open question. Okay. Thank you. And and what you were talking about as well, kind of the broader, large economic questions. The court is kind of what works what we've talked about in, I know you talked about in the administrative law space. They're kind of talking instituting what is called the the major questions doctrine, right? So there's a lot of prognostication occurring around how the court's going to define what a major question is. And I know that um, recently, you know, there's already been a lot of litigation starting to attempt to use that doctrine to stop the SEC from climate disclosure regulation, to stop the Transportation Department on uh, highway emissions regulation, and even to stop FERC from their deliberations on, you know, the greenhouse gas um, piece of permitting decisions. Um, where do you think, you know, based on understanding that it's going to take years of litigation, lots of additional decisions for the court to kind of define what a major question is, um, where does your experience and intuition tell you we're headed? Um, and, and what is that ultimate impact you think on climate or, or environmental legislation? Regulation. To, to quote uh, 
what was then Vice President Biden talking about uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, enactment during the Obama administration. The major questions doctrine is a big deal. I won't use the, uh, the adjective it used. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, and it's gonna have implications not only in the environmental regulatory space, but um, across the board for all kinds of federal regulation. Um, the, the court's decision in West Virginia is kind of remarkable in the sense that the court admitted that what EPA tried to do in adopting the Clean Power Plan under the Obama administration was within a plausible interpretation of the Clean Air Act. It wasn't far-fetched. It wasn't outrageous. The statute could plausibly be interpreted to give EPA the power to engage in generation shifting. And yet the court said, doesn't matter. Uh, we're gonna strike down EPA's uh, regulatory efforts here because when the major questions doctrine applies, it's not enough that a plausible interpretation of the statute supports what the agency is trying to do. There's gotta be a very clear delegation of authority by Congress to the agency to do exactly what the agency is trying to do. This is remarkable because it flips a sort of an iconic Supreme Court decision called Chevron decided back in 1984 on its head. That case said, if the statute is ambiguous, a court reviewing an alleged violation of the agency's statutory authority is required to defer to, that is accept any reasonable interpretation provided by the agency. And courts have been very deferential in applying that standard. The statute's ambiguous. Historically, the agency have almost always won. Here the court's saying, it's not even clear the statute's ambiguous. You could plausibly read it to, to, to support what EPA did. Nevertheless, we're not only not gonna defer, we're gonna take the opposite position and kind of presume that Congress didn't want the agency to have this authority unless the agency can pinpoint somewhere in the statute or the legislative history, a clear indication that the agency was, was given this authority. That's gonna be very difficult for agencies to do in the future. These tend to be cases in which the statute is not crystal clear. Yeah. And so anytime the major questions doctrine is applied, the agency is gonna be kind of behind the eight ball. And it's gonna have an uphill climb in, in um, convincing a reviewing court that the statute's clear enough to authorize it to do what it, what it wants to do. You mentioned a couple of uh, situations in which uh, litigants have already challenged yeah. agency regulatory proposals based on the major questions doctrine. There are a couple of other uh, examples that we already know about. Yeah. And those are the, the COVID cases the Supreme Court decided right. in its shadow docket um, early in the year. So for one thing, the court said OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, doesn't have the authority to impose on large employers and mandate that their employees either be vaccinated or undergo periodic testing, not sufficiently within the scope of statutory authority. Even though the way I read the statute, it's quite clear that OSHA does have that authority. Court came out differently. So one of the things you, you teed up is, so when's this doctrine gonna apply? Yeah. Well. The doctrines its name indicates applies when the agency's authority raises a, a major question 
what does that mean? The court didn't really tell us. Right. Um, Justice um, Gorsuch's concurring opinion gave us some factors that might be relevant. Mm -hmm. One of them is um, whether or not the exercise of the authority has turned out to be politically controversial. Another one is, is this something the agency is trying to do for the first time under a statute that's been in effect for quite a while? The court's suspicious of what it calls newly found authority in, in a long extant statute, which to me is extremely troublesome on, on both of those grounds, starting with the second. So if the agency hasn't done something before, yeah. the court's going to be very Makes reluctant to endorse. Makes it hard for an agency to innovate. That. that kind of puts a, 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 a damper on agency efforts to be innovative and creative. Yeah. And if they're addressing novel problems like COVID, we hadn't had a, a severe pandemic in this country since 1918. Right. So no agency had sought to deal with that kind of pandemic until COVID. Climate change, relatively novel problem compared to some of the other problems addressed in the Queen era. Agencies have tried to figure out creative ways to effectively address these pressing social problems. And the court's basically saying, not okay. likely to approve your efforts to do so, which kind of leads to what I think is the likelihood of dysfunctional government at the federal level, government that's not empowered to tackle the most pressing and important social problems. The other factor I mentioned was political controversy. So I was looking in an abstract of an article that's uh, forthcoming by a couple of professors from University of Michigan Law School. What they said was, this is really a pernicious doctrine because what it does is enable opponents of regulation to sort of drum up political controversy. And if they're successful in doing so, which they can do on their own social media, yeah. uh, among other things, then that's gonna trigger, at least could trigger the major questions doctrine, which has a decided anti-regulatory thrust. So opponents of regulation now have a new and powerful tool which the courts are going to use as their ally mm -hmm. to stop agency regulatory efforts on important social problems. So to me, the major question doctrine is not only a big deal, but a bad deal. That's really interesting. Um, one of the first things that came to mind when you mentioned the politically controversial piece is, you know, we do live in a time that is very politically fractured and partisan. Um, so it's not hard for something to be politically controversial. Relatively minor things tend to be politically controversial right now. Um, and then the first time doing something, uh, you mentioned 1918. It made me think, um, just thinking about my US government history, many of the agencies um, didn't even exist uh, in, in until you know the 30s. And then we think about even more recently, like the Department of Homeland Security is something that was created in my lifetime. Um, and so when an agency is new, um, they are often going to be doing new things or relatively young, they're going to be doing new things. Um, and so it's hard for them to refer back to historical power when they didn't exist to exert a historical power. Um, so, so those are a couple of things that come to mind. And, and just one last thing is um, one of you know, the main takeaways that I'm taking away from what you're saying is um, what we're thinking, what, what, what could, we could be seeing is 
um, a significant or an abrogation of agency power to make significant decisions. Uh, they may be able to make small decisions, but to make anything that's determined as major, that power is, is going to be eliminated. And we have to wait and see what is major, unless it's explicitly outlined in the legislative text. Right. Is that it, correct? It's not eliminated from all of government. It's eliminated from the realm of agency authority. The court's rationale is, well, if we enunciate this rule that agencies can't do important, novel, mm -hmm. uh, impactful things without explicit congressional authorization, that's going to induce Congress to take things, take things into its own hands and adopt the legislation that's needed to provide that sort of clear authority, which is great in theory, that's but right. Congress is pretty much dysfunctional these days, not entirely. It's very hard to adopt major pieces of legislation, especially non-appropriations legislation. We haven't had significant amendments to the Clean Air Act since 1990. It's a long time ago. And the reason for that is you just can't get a, a majority coalition together in both houses at once with a, a, a sympathetic president to adopt legislation. Beyond that, although the court says that it's handing this authority back to, to, to Congress, in, in a sense, it's taking it away from Congress because when Congress passes statutes like the Clean Air Act, adopted in 1970, it intentionally used broad language because it realized things are going to happen that we can't anticipate. And we want the agency to be at the ready to deal with that kind of problem when it arises. So we will use broad language like adopt regulations that are requisite to protect the public health. Mm -hmm. And we will count on the agency's expertise and proficiency to adopt necessary responses to emerging problems. Well, the court basically overrode that broad language in this case and said, not good enough. You may have intended to give the agency this broad authority, but we don't buy it. Go back to the drawing board and do it more specifically. And that's gonna be hard. Yeah, so, so essentially what you're saying there is if even if Congress tried to address its own inability to legislate quickly, uh, by giving agencies power to be nimble and take care of, of problems affecting citizens of this country, that that's not good enough. They are going to have to go back to the drawing board and, and actually right. legislate. Let me, let me take it one step further. I mentioned Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion, mm -hmm. which is important not only because he enunciates some of the factors that, that might go into deciding whether the major questions doctrine applies, but he provides the rationale for the doctrine in more explicit terms than uh, Chief Justice Roberts did. And he talks about something that some of your members may be aware of, especially those with some legal uh, exposure called the non-delegation doctrine. Mm -hmm. This is a doctrine that the Supreme Court theoretically has on the books, but hasn't used since 1935. In fact, it's only used it twice in its history to strike down a federal statute both in 1935 at the beginning of the New Deal. Yeah. Since then, the court has never found a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. Justice Gorsuch links the major questions doctrine with the non-delegation doctrine. And what he's teeing up, I think, is the possibility that even if Congress were 
to adopt the kind of clear statutory delegation that was missing, according to the, the court in this mm -hmm. case, it might be unconstitutional because the non-delegation doctrine says important questions need to be answered by Congress, not agencies. So if Congress says, here's an important question, we're not gonna provide the answer, but we're gonna give you clear authority agency to do that. Justice Gorsuch and I think others like Justice Thomas are inclined to say, you can't do it no matter how clear the statutory language is. Only Congress okay. can address important social problems. And again, because of the political polarization um, and the difficulty of mustering majorities, yeah. that may mean dysfunctional government across the board, not just in agencies. Okay. Well, that's, that's a lot. Um, and unfortunately, not super optimistic, of course. Um, but as we think about, you know, that context, what kinds of, you know, climate actions or rules uh, do you think the Biden administration can expect to successfully implement after this decision? Um, one that's been bandied about is declaring a climate uh, emergency. And, you know, what do you think? Do you think that would be an effective avenue? And then just one caveat, of course, to that big question, you know, yesterday we received the news of, uh, you know, a reconciliation package that has some significant climate component. Um, are you, do you have any caveats to your answer as a result of that? Well, let me start with the last question. I haven't actually read the, the bill, which you tell me is over 700 pages. Uh, yeah, I haven't had the time, but, but apparently a large part of it is uh, basically financial in nature, that is, they're providing tax incentives for people to do things that uh, the um, legislators want them to do, yeah. like use electric cars or install solar energy panels or for companies to invest in, in, in solar or wind facilities. Um, and on the other hand, there's apparently some language in there um, that provides negative incentives in, in the form of um, fees that will be imposed on methane emissions at some point in the future. So I think those kinds of, of fixes are well within Congress's authority. The um, tax power under Article One of the Constitution and the power to spend uh, are, are expansive and always been interpreted expansively. And so I think it's relatively safe for Congress to use those kinds of, of uh, authorities to try and get people to do positive things and dissuade them from doing things that are gonna be harmful to the environment. I don't th think that's gonna be where the rubber hits the road. Um, in terms of the um, declaration of an emergency, I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is that uh, an emergency declaration triggers authority under some 100 or 150 different statutes to allow agencies to do things that otherwise would require additional congressional authorization. And again, some of this is, is monetary in nature. Yeah. So if President Biden were to declare an emergency, apparently he would be able out of existing uh, statutory appropriations to refunnel some money to agencies like the um, um, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Authority, to take actions that help uh, communities there uh, suffering the consequences of climate change, like extreme droughts or extreme heat waves or susceptibility to sea, sea level rise or uh, severe storms that are um, caused or at least made worse by climate change. Um, so I adaptation think, instead of mitigation. Of yeah, mostly adaptation, that's right. Okay. 
Um, my guess is that <clears throat> the more creative the, uh, the agencies tried to be in using this emergency authority, the more likely it is the major questions doctor would rear its head in those contexts that well. So at a minimum, you'd see a lot of litigation okay. uh, over the propriety of the declaration itself because there's been argument that the emergency uh, authorization was designed to deal with short-term one-time events as opposed to ongoing um, problems like climate change. Okay. Uh, so even if climate change is causing a short-term emergency, it really stems from a long-term uh, uh, meteorological uh, set of, of, of circumstances. And so there would be litigation over whether it was an appropriate use of Defining an emergency, statutes. essentially. And then second, even if so, whether particular uses of that authority were were, were valid. Okay. No, that, that's really helpful um, because we there, all... there, are, there are things that, that the agencies can do under existing law. So, for example, the government can use its procurement authority mm -hmm. uh, in ways that will, will uh, mitigate climate change. It can enter into contracts with uh, procurement er, firms that they use sort of best environmental best practices, um, generate power using clean energy, um, purchase supplies from other companies that are using good environmental practices. I think that's fairly well established. And we've seen uh, the administration do that with the president's commitment to replacing the federal vehicle fleet with EVs. That's a purchasing uh, power yes. that they're using, yeah. And another thing I would mention is the, um, authority to manage federal lands and resources, which comes from uh, the property clause of the Constitution. It vests in Congress the authority to make all needful rules and regulations uh, governing use of federal lands and resources. So we're talking about national parks, national forests, uh, wildlife refuges, national monuments. There are statutes that delegate broad authority to agencies like the Park Service, the Forest Service, the BLM, to manage lands under their jurisdiction in ways that prevent environmental degradation. And so that might provide the basis for the government to restrict, maybe not prohibit, but restrict new coal exploration on federal lands, or new oil and gas leasing on um, onshore and offshore lands. Those are things that, that might be challenged, but I, I think they're relatively firm sources of authority to deal with climate change under existing law. Okay. No, I think that's really helpful context for, for our audience. Um, and, and just moving into our last planned question before we jump into some audience Q&A. Um, you know, as an organization, CCL advocates for legislation to address climate change. And what are your thoughts on how you've touched on this a little bit, um, how decision this decision impacts how we legislate? and the need for legislation to address climate change head on or that empowers agencies to do so? Well, in an ideal world, we'd have a climate change bill, which we've never had before. That would clearly be the most effective way to give the agencies the tools they need to deal with climate change. And to the extent that you've got legislators that uh, are either on the fence or supportive of, of legislation to deal with, with climate change, I think uh, NGOs like yours would be well advised to try and um, provide support for and advocate in favor of these kinds of legislative changes. Uh, even if it's only appropriations or reconciliations type legislation, um, the, the bill that's now being considered 
currently would involve funneling billions of dollars of money um, toward climate change mitigation. So I think that kind of advocacy and, and uh, activity would be, would be useful. Another thing you might do um, is get involved in, in the agency process as well. When agencies issue major regulations, they go through a process known as notice and comment, mm -hmm. in which they provide a notice in the Federal Register that they're planning on doing a particular thing, and they solicit comments from interested members of the public. Do we have it right? Are we missing something? Do you think we should go in a different direction? Um, and it's easy to, to provide comments because it's all online these days, mm -hmm. the click of a button. And so I think participating in that kind of regulatory process uh, can be really helpful. And once you participate, the information you supply is part of the administrative record. Yeah. And so if the agency decides to do what you're, what you're advocating uh, and it's later challenged, you've got raw material in the administrative record that can help the agency withstand a judicial challenge to what it's doing. Thank you, that's, that's extremely helpful. Um, so I wanna move into some of our audience questions now. Um, I'm gonna, since we have limited time, I'm gonna combine a couple of them here um, so that we can try and, and address similar topics at once. Um, so one of our questions is whether or not the EPA can just decide to require power plants to reduce CO2 emissions within a certain time frame, say to 10 years. But what I want to add to that is, could they do that by regulating CO2 as a pollutant or, or um, not regulating, but uh, defining CO2 as a pollutant or a toxic you know, substance or something along those lines? CO2 is already an air pollutant and that the Supreme Court established that in Massachusetts versus EPA. Right. And that's what gives EPA the authority to adopt regulations that apply to auto manufacturers to manufacture fuel efficient cars. Uh, because the less uh, motor gasoline you burn uh, per mile traveled, the fewer greenhouse gases are going to be emitted. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's another promising avenue for the Biden administration to pursue, to continue to tighten up on vehicle emission standards and, and fuel efficiency uh, requirements. Um, there has been a lot of controversy over whether EPA should um, use different provisions of the statute that are better suited to regulating what are called stationary sources like factories. Mm -hmm. One would be to designate CO2 as a hazardous air pollutant because the statute gives EPA direct authority to regulate stationary sources that emit hazardous air pollutants. Um, another would be to call CO2 what's called a criteria pollutant, which is sort of the foundation of the Clean Air Act. Once EPA designates a criteria pollutant, um, it adopts what are called national ambient air quality standards, yeah. which put a cap on the concentration of the pollutant in the outside air. And at that point, um, the responsibility is devolved to the states to come up with plans that will reduce emissions in their jurisdictions in ways consistent with the cap. Some people say, look, these are options that are out there. Um, what we've been doing so far hasn't worked very well. Let's try these. Others say these provisions were never adopted with a pollutant like CO2 in mind, yeah. and they're a bad fit. So the criteria pollutant uh, program, for example, 
is meant to deal with localized excess concentrations of pollutants. Right. But climate change is uniform all over the world. Right. And so after West Virginia versus EPA, I have doubts over whether EPA would, would prevail if it tried to designate CO2 as a criteria pollutant. Closer question, maybe with respect to hazardous air pollutants. I don't think the EPA is going to go in either of those directions in the near future. Okay, very helpful. Um, and, and helpful on the context, contextual side about why CO2 is different than some of those others that have been uh, regulated as criteria pollutants. Um, this next one is going to require you to put your professor of law hat on a little bit uh, on the administrative side. Um, so the, the question is, where did the major questions doctrine come from? Um, did the court itself generate it? And you know, how, how are they able to do that themselves? Yes, it's a, purely a creation of, of the court's own jurisprudence. There was a case decided about 20 years ago called Brown and Williamson, which involved um, a challenge to an attempt by the Food and Drug Administration to regulate tobacco products. Um, and this is before there was explicit authority that gave FDA that power. And a very early crude version of the major questions doctrine was used in that case to disable FDA's authority to regulate tobacco. Again, the court said, look, FDA has been around since the 1930s. It's never tried to regulate tobacco or tobacco products. It's doing now, so now for the first time, what gives? No, statute doesn't clearly say you can do that. Um, to me, the major questions doctrine has undergone a, a major revision recently. First of all, it was, it was rarely invoked um, until recently. And now we've seen it invoked in three major cases in the last year, the two OSHA case, the two COVID cases and the West Virginia case. But, but it's more than that. When the doctrine began, it was what I call a deference doctrine. I mentioned that Chevron case a little while ago where the courts are supposed to accept any reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute. The major questions doctrine used to say, if it's a major question, however we decide to define that, Chevron will not apply. So the agency won't start off with an advantage. We won't say, you are presumptively able to do this unless what you're trying to do is completely unreasonable. Major questions doctrine says, no, if the question's important enough, Congress would have wanted the court to decide what the statute means, not the agency. So basically that put agencies in a neutral posture. They didn't start out with an advantage, but they didn't start with a disadvantage either. The court would interpret the statute basically on a level playing field. In the two COVID cases and in West Virginia though, the court has gone much further. It's now not just, well, we won't give you the advantage, it's, we're gonna severely disadvantage you. So agencies are no longer given the upper hand. Agencies are no longer even on a level playing field. Now they're in, in, in the hole and really have a very difficult time defending what they did. So that's a major change. Yeah. The court has shifted the doctrine from a deference doctrine. How rigorously is the court gonna review what the agency did to a doctrine that disables agency regulatory authority as a substantive basis. And there's nothing in the Constitution, other than perhaps the non-delegation doctrine, according to Justice Gorsuch, that provides an underpinning for this. The court invented it. Well, that's, that's helpful. Um, 
and, and they have the power to do that because they're the one that's interpreting the law. So they're the ultimate ultimate uh, decision maker there. Um, okay, thank you for that. So pivoting a little bit more specifically to the EPA, um, this question is, it strikes me that the ruling is almost forcing the EBA, EPA um, to use inefficient and more ineffective uh, technical fixes. Um, so it's not necessarily doing the most to protect the climate or the environment. Um, this almost seems opposite to the EPA's mission, or is it not? Yeah, that, that's a good question. There are several aspects to that, and I'll, I'll just address one or two and see what we have time for. Sure. Um, yeah, I think you used the word inefficient, which is exactly right. I, I mentioned earlier that emissions trading is a very efficient way to reduce pollution. Um, and for that reason, economists, and for much of the 1970s and 80s, Republican politicians, conservative politicians, were very much in favor of the use of market-based regulatory tools. Instead of saying to somebody, you must do this particular thing to achieve this particular result, the idea was, well, we'll tell you what you have to do, but you figure out the cheapest, most efficient way to get there. And the mission training helps accomplish that. Well, now that's off the table under the Clean Air Act. And I think great evidence of um, the, the problematic aspect of that is that most of the electric utility industry supported yeah. EPA in this case, precisely because they realized you're just asking us to do what's in our best interest to do anyway, because it's the most efficient way to regulate greenhouse gases. Now, the government can't demand that. And so, Utilities are going to be thrown back into, I think, much less efficient and much less effective uh, ways to reduce greenhouse gases. And on the effectiveness point, the Obama plan called the Clean Power Plan was far more stringent than the Trump Affordable Clean Energy Rule, right. which was based upon an interpretation of the Clean Air Act that the Supreme Court adopted. I mean, magnitudes fewer greenhouse gas emissions reductions under the Trump plan. So if the agency is constrained to do only what the Trump agency tried to do, you're not gonna get much in the way of emissions reduction under this provision of the Clean Air Act. So it's less efficient and it's less effective. On that note, um, I know that there's been some talk out there that what is might be possible uh, based on the court's decision um, and some of reading the tea leaves from that decision is that uh, maybe the EPA could implement some of the factors in the Trump administration's, it was called ACE, um, uh, alternative to, to the Clean Air Act, or sorry, um, to the Obama plan, Clean Power Plan. Um, and it said essentially that there's some conjecture out there that you could use those tools, but you could kind of ratchet them up hard, you know, to a greater degree than the, the Trump plan had, had uh, suggested. And those were things about um, like heat loss and other things on, on regulations on some power plants. Do you think that that train of thought is probably correct? Or do you think that they'll be more restrictive than that? No, I think that is correct to some extent, at least. I think that's probably what the Biden administration's EPA will try and do okay. um, by adopting these sort of plant by plant technological fix type controls. Uh, but my, my concern is that if the controls are alleged to be stringent enough to threaten the viability of some electric power plants, the yeah. court could balk and say, no, 
you're still forcing There's them out no of There's no indication that Congress intended to regulate so stringently that you would shut down the electric power industry. So again, you might run into a major questions type problem there. Okay. Well, we are, we're just up to time. So um, thank you so much. Uh, I know you've given us all a lot to think about and consider. Um, I really appreciate um, your, your willingness to join us. Um, and, and so, so thank you uh, for, for, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. This was great. You, you asked great questions and you, you teed things up uh, expertly. So <laughs> this was well, enjoyable for me and I hope for your audience as well. Thank you very much. So for the audience um, on the screen in a moment, there's going to be a brief reminder of where you can find today's recording to share with those that couldn't join us live, as well as our education director, Brett Cease's email, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, anything. Um, lastly, here's the website for CDCL if you'd like to get more involved and the registration for next month's Big Tent Climate Talk. Uh, we're going to be joined by Bill McKibben next week, so it's going to be terrific to talk to another climate expert about the work his organization is doing. We'll be back next quarter, same time, same place, fourth Thursday of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, thank you again to our special guest, Professor Glixman, and all the important work he's doing. And stay safe and be well, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.